you've been looking for inspiration, hope, and an insightful look into literacy transformation, you have found the right place. This Literacy Leadership Podcast miniseries features powerhouse co-host Linda Diamond, Dr. Tracy Wheaton, Dr. Tim Odegaard, and myself, Dr. Terry Noland. This miniseries is a convergence of ideas, experiences, and aspirations, a symphony of voices that will resonate far beyond the sound waves of our voices. So, with hearts full of hope, minds open to possibility, let us dive into the rich tapestry of discussions, ideas, and dreams that await us. Together, as literacy leaders, let us be the change we wish to see in this world. Thank you for joining us on this remarkable journey towards a brighter future and a more literate society. Welcome to this episode, friends. So glad you are here with us in this journey as we are talking about literacy leadership. We are standing on the shoulders of literacy giants that are leading large across our country, having those rich, deep, wonderful conversations as we need how to be better leaders in our own lives and better leaders with our schools and districts. I'm Terry Nolan, and I am here joined by my co-hosts, Linda Diamond, Dr. Tracy Wheaton, and Dr. Tim Odegaard. We've got someone special for you this week, as we always do, and I'm going to invite my friend Tracy Wheaton to come to the mic and introduce our guest for today. Terry, you used the word special, and I would emphasize that. Dr. Allison Peck is currently the Chief Academic Officer at Nyhouse Education Center. We are based in Houston, Texas. She currently holds certifications as a certified academic language therapist and a qualified instructor. So she is a heavy hitter when it comes to being a literacy expert. She is a licensed dyslexia therapist for the state of Texas and a structured literacy dyslexia specialist for the International Dyslexia Association. Allison is a special education and general ed teacher, so she brings that context to this conversation. She's also served as a reading specialist teacher, and with her experience being in public school, middle school, private school, elementary, she brings that qualitative element to what it means to operate in all of those realms and has been at that work as a teacher for 18 years. Allison has a bachelor's in political science and an MLA in history and an ME in curriculum and instruction. And she recently completed her PhD in literacy at St. John's University in New York. Allison was drawn to this work in the field of dyslexia and literacy because of her personal experiences with her oldest child who was diagnosed and identified as being dyslexic in kindergarten. And, and I'd love for her to be able to elaborate on that to the degree she wants to. So she has lived this experience in many different ways. So with that introduction, Allison, it's so wonderful to bring you into this circle and this conversation. Thank you, Tracy. It's an honor to be here. It's a little intimidating as well. So I will try to speak my truth, but I know that I have wonderful people behind me that can speak up and correct any misspoken pieces on my part. I've lived through passion. Education was not my chosen field. I was not one of those kids that grew up playing school. Not at all. Not even a little bit. It was out of need. It was the mama bear instinct when my own child was struggling 
to learn how to read. It didn't make sense to me. I had to know more. I wanted to be able to help him the best I could. I was one of those kids that I don't remember how I learned to read. I just got it and I exploded and went on my way. So I couldn't imagine having a child that couldn't have the same experience. But through all of this, the funny part of this is once the diagnosis came out and my husband was part of this process, he said, sure, I have dyslexia as well. And I thought, are you kidding me? I just thought you were the quirky guy I met in college that because I loved writing papers would help him with write papers because I was the nerdy one that loved doing that sort of thing. That was his struggle. That was his burden to bear. And, and he went to school in the 80s and a lot of that traumatized him. He was put in special ed for an entire year for his third grade year until they realized, oh, he's pretty smart. He just doesn't know how to read. And so living all of that through him, just put this to another level of, I don't want my own child to be as traumatized as my grown husband was by this whole experience. So a lot of it was just unpacking family history, talking to my mother-in-law, her husband. So my father-in-law was dyslexic as well. He grew up in England. So learning about their school system and when he took the test to either go to university or to learn a trade, they said, absolutely, you're not university material. You have to learn a trade. So he went off. He was able to be successful. He became a draftsman, worked for some oil companies. And end of the story, he ended up owning his own oil company. So in my head, I thought, okay, this is not a deterrent to success, right? This is an obstacle. This is something we have to figure out. We have to get behind it and navigate those waters. And so that's what just set me on a different sort of path. First, just to help my own child, I was lucky enough to be living in Houston where Nyhouse Education Center is in the backyard. I was sent there by a teacher to say, hey, I think they deal with reading. Go check them out. I went to an information session and they were speaking my language. All of the things they were saying about a child with dyslexia was like, oh, yep, that's my kid to a T. What do I do? I ended up taking the course, Basic Language Skills, which is their intro into becoming a therapist. And I thought, I'm just a mom. I'm never going to survive this. And I loved it. Not every person is built to teach structured literacy. I found the rhythm and cadence and the repetition and all of the parts and pieces just fascinating. I loved every bit of it. And so that's really where all of this took off. And I wanted to first work with my child. Then I said, let me go work with other students that are struggling. I became a private therapist. And then I said, I've got to take this into the classroom. Because if I can teach my child who was more severe than moderate on the spectrum of dyslexia, I can teach any child to read. That was just that mindset that I had. So when I went into schools and I was asked to teach some of these programs, which are now so highly talked about in the media, I knew it wasn't me, right? I was the one saying, I don't think this is working. I don't think this is right. And I would spend hours instead of teaching reading recovery to my seventh and eighth grade students, I would try to do their world and do what I knew worked, which was the elements of the science of reading to help them make progress. And so just the whole time, none of it made sense to me. When I was in elementary and they wanted me to do Fontes and Pinnell, I said, it's not strong enough. This isn't an intervention. It's great books, but there's no science behind what you're doing. So it's almost like I was in reverse. I was like, I knew this is wrong. I know this isn't helping these students. What can I do? So I carried a lot of that burden myself because administrators were like, just follow the program. Your kids are making progress. Well, they were making progress because I was spending hours figuring out 
how to insert science of reading into those programs to make that work. So that's been my experience. And so I think that's why I love working with teachers now, because I can come at it from the lens of, I was asked to teach a lot of those things. I have the experience of a special ed as being a case manager, where you had to look at a student and find the strengths and weaknesses. And some of them didn't have very many strengths, right? So we had to find what that was so we could build up that self-confidence. We could give them the tools that they needed to be successful in the classroom. So now that my passion is to just work with teachers to say it's okay. Curriculums may not be perfect, but we can fill you with the information to know what to do when what is in front of you and that you're being asked to teach maybe doesn't align with science Mm -hmm. of reading. You can understand the parts and pieces behind it. I've seen it work. I've seen it work with many, many severely dyslexic children. I've worked with children with traumatic brain injuries. I know we can teach all kids to read. It's just getting the right information in front of them. So that is what took me all the way to get a PhD in literacy because I want to know what happens and how are we supposed to learn to read? We know it's not innate. We're not born with it. But how do we make it happen? And what happens when it doesn't? I think we're all on that quest for the answer, the understanding, the analytical knowledge and the research behind how all of this amazing skill of reading actually happens. You said something so important. You said, how do we make it happen? And I would say, how do we make it happen to scale? So from your experiences, regardless of zip code or student group, Allison, you've had extensive experience working with school districts to align their literacy practices and curriculum choices with the science of reading, with evidence-based practices. So on that journey of change and transformation, what do you find is the hardest part of that work? That is the million-dollar question. I think, to me, it's seeing it from this lens, when we can come in and work with a state department or a district or a campus It's really getting everyone moving in the same direction with the same intentionality, the same urgency, with that same ultimate goal in mind. I think things just get off court so easy. I think right now there are a lot of revolving definitions of the science of reading, some negative, you know, that it's hard to work around and make all of those belief systems about what needs to be happening in the classroom. And a lot of those outdated curriculums, some are really fun to use, right? They're fun activities. So it's teasing away what is happening in the classroom with what should be happening in the classroom. I think something that is really hard that we've seen over the last two years is teacher retention. It's at a real crisis because what we know about the science of reading is when we honor these teachers and we pour into them. And they're implementing and doing all those great things in the classroom, not only, you know, the activities behind it to really bring out those readers, but also being able to be prescriptive and diagnostic in their work. What happens when a child doesn't master something that they need in order to move on? How do you handle that? How do you handle data in your classroom? We can pour into teachers. We can give them all of these things. But when teachers walk out the door, all of that knowledge leaves with them. So you have to start over in that new space. And to me, that is the most heartbreaking thing when we're dealing with districts and they have 25, 30% of their teachers walking out the door each year. So just when you start to make traction and you think, oh, wow, the second and third grade teams are awesome. They're getting it. They're using each other. 
to just really dig deep into what this looks like in the classroom. They're celebrating their students' gains, but then all of a sudden they're burned out for all the other factors in teaching and they walk away. And all of that knowledge that was poured in, yeah, they leave a few manuals behind, but it's what you do with it. It's how you walk into that classroom and that knowledge you bring with you of the understanding of, wow, this kid really has this part, but they have the decoding, but I need to work on comprehension. So how am I going to focus on that? It's knowing all of those parts that get lost when teachers leave. So I think that is the hardest part of the work right now. Same with administrators. They're leaving at a rapid pace. There's a lot of readjusting within districts. So just when you feel like you have traction, there's lots of change really at all levels. So really just keeping it moving, because if I identify one thing, science of reading is knowledge and it's teachers taking the time in their craft to learn all of the research and the why you do the things that you need to do when they leave. It's absolutely devastating. And I really appreciate, Allison, your reference to the fact that there are other barriers to learning beyond solid classroom instruction and intervention support. We can't pretend that Teachers aren't navigating very changing circumstances now. And post-COVID, the trauma, not just of the children, but of the educators. I'm also hearing that when districts plan the work, they're bringing honor back to the profession for teachers and leaders. So with that in mind, do you have examples of districts that you've worked with that have made that shift of planning the work, working the plan, and getting the kind of growth we want to see? And if so, what did that process look like? What we know is this is not fast. It's not easy. I always kind of equate it to that slow-moving tanker ship that sometimes veers off course, but if the intent is there and the structure is there, they can get back on course because this is not an easy process. It's not like you're going to have one school board meeting and you're going to say, oh, we're going to change next year to science of reading, and it happens. You can buy one manual. It's one size fits all. There, you're off to the races. That's not how it works. Districts have to be willing to do the work, right? There's a phrase that we use, and I know it's outdated and it's old fashioned and I hesitate to use it, but it really fits. And I'm gonna say it, readiness to benefit. Schools have to be willing to do the work before they even talk about curriculum. And this is one thing that I feel like we as an educational community could hold our standards a bit higher to because we want that quick fix. We wanna say, buy this curriculum and just implement. I think you've got to start way before that and having these discussions if this is really going to work on your campus, in your district, even at the state level. Really, the ones that have been successful are the ones that have a committee of decision makers. It can't just be one person pushing for the science of reading. What happens? That person leaves. There's a change in supervisors. Then it's lost, right? All is lost. So you really need to just be more thoughtful about that. You need to start with an entire group of people from school board members, school leaders, administrators, teachers, parents. All of these folks need to come together and really take a hard look at what's happening at their district, at their level. Start at the data, right? All districts have data. Some choose to use it for good and some choose to ignore it. And so really being honest with what is happening with their data and be willing to say, this is where we are. We can do better, right? So this is how we're going to get there. They also have to peel back that top layer of what they think is happening in the classroom 
versus that perception of, oh, we're doing that. We are doing that. What's really happening? You have to be willing to kind of take that trust fall as an educational community and say, we're going to find out what's happening. We're going to review our curriculums, right? We're going to have an outside source come in that we can use and take a good look at our curriculums. We've seen some crazy things happening. The perception is, yes, they are using science of reading or are they really? You know, are those administrators doing the classroom walks? Do they have enough knowledge and information about what should be happening where they can even help out and make those decisions? And then, you know, once you take that deeper dive, you start having groups of teachers and you've got to get teachers on board. So start having groups, these committees that you put together to start reading books about the science of reading, start reading the research articles and come together and discuss and form a learning community for those that are already on board and those that are more hesitant. So everyone can be on the same page and you have time to adjust to that mindset to really get all faculty and staff bought into what you're doing. Everyone from those teaching assistants to your superintendent, they have to understand what this is and what you're moving toward. Because only then, when you have that in mind, can those big changes happen I will say it again, all of this hard work has to happen before you even think about, oh, now we're going to buy good curriculum. Now we know what that high quality instructional material looks like. Now we're going to go after and we're going to find that. That's a whole nother process involved in doing that to make sure you're looking for the right things. But do the work before you even get there. In the systems that we have seen really make a shift, everyone is bought in. You could go up and talk to anyone and they're going to know about the science of reading. All of the campuses are speaking the same language. It's not, oh, this campus is doing it, but this one isn't really because they have other things going on. No, it's a non-negotiable. We're all in. We're moving forward. And those have been the districts and even isolated campuses that choose to do that as a team. And that's how it's got to work. Allison, that brings to mind you were a guest in Echo Institute's model for creating case study analysis for people that are in a similar space. And in this case, we had a group of superintendents across the state of Texas convening regularly to talk about the science of reading and implications. So when you think about that and you think about superintendents who will relegate, this is up to somebody who's still thinking with a mindset that's uninformed. Why must superintendents ensure that they know enough to be the chief champions? And if they are not, what could go wrong? Great question. To be in a room full of superintendents was a wonderful learning curve for me because I needed to get inside their brain to see what they were thinking. So to spend time in that environment with those high level decision makers was just joyous. I mean, also intimidating, right? But what I know is the ones that are in it to make the change, to make a difference, are the ones that are very humble and, they're, and they will admit what they know and what they don't know about literacy. The ones that we really come into contact are the ones that are, either they do have a reading background or the ones that don't are willing to say, you know what, I've got to surround myself with people that are really good at this information. And if that takes finding a consultant to come in and figure out who knows what, but I'm going to bring someone alongside me that can film in my weaknesses. To me, that's the number one priority. And then they have to listen. They really have to listen. They have to know that teachers matter. They have to be bought in. They have to be the ones that are walking the hallways that will join in during PLC time. They have to be able to look at data 
And again, even if they're not masters of data, listen to the people that can be honest with them about what is happening and what does it mean, right? Not just, oh, our students aren't doing great. What are we going to do about it? Let's dig down and do the work to figure out what needs to happen, what's working, what's not working. To me, they're always in that constant process mode of this next quarter, let's focus here. They're in it. They know what's happening on their campuses. They really need to be cheerleaders and they've got to be supportive of teachers. If we're going to fix the teacher retention problem, then we've got to have those high level administrators have their backs. To be honest with you, they have to be all in on the science of reading, on the curriculum, on behavior, whatever's happening. They have to be a cheerleader and a champion. And we have to be able to say to teachers, I'm sorry, maybe you didn't get this right in your university program or your alternative certification. You know, we don't even really distinguish anymore where teachers come from. We're so excited they're in the class, but we're going to honor where you are. And we're going to help pull you to where we want you to be because we know this is best for kids. I got to leap in there, Allison. You got me fired up because doing a book study with my team right now, Speed of Trust, being vulnerable enough to admit we got it wrong and say, I'm sorry, but we know better now so we can do better. That's great leadership. We can go at the speed of trust. And we have mistreated educators in this country. We have kicked them for every social ill as if they were supposed to fix every social ill. So what you just said, it really moves me because restoring that trust that we've got your back, we don't have a knife in our hand. We have a hand on your back and on your shoulder to support you, to bring honor to your work. So that was so powerful. And when I think about this phrase as well, because as we're talking about the next new initiative and the teachers are thinking this too shall pass, hopefully, right? Some of them, right. this idea of fidelity of implementation, it could be like a dirty word to people. They want to wash their mouths out with soap. So when we think about that, how do we change the dread for teachers to excitement, to hope? We have to be willing to walk alongside teachers. We have to understand that in the educational community, we are partners with teachers, curriculum coaches, administrators. And I think if they can start to open themselves up to more of that belief of it's not just this tight campus. Yes, those are your peers, your friends, your people that you're in the trenches with day to day. But the education community as a whole, as a field, we just have to get better at not placing blame on anything. I think we just address where we are and give grace from where we come from and just point to where we need to go and just keep people excited and passionate about that. We just don't have time to place blame. Really, we don't. I need teachers to understand the urgency and really throw our full intention behind what we can do now. What research is telling us is true and honest and how we can help all students learn to read. We always talk to teachers using my Angelou's quote, Tracy, that you referred to earlier, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, you do better. That's just what we have to do. We're going to meet you wherever you are. Let's move forward and let's do it. Let's do this together. Let's do it with grace and kindness and a smile and an open heart and an open mm -hmm. mind. Let's do this. That's right. I want to jump in here only because this topic of fidelity intrigues me. I actually wrote an article about fidelity. I think when you talk with teachers and you help them look at the idea that if we don't follow what we're called to do, if we don't have fidelity, then we won't really know 
if it works, because we would have domesticated it. We would have <laughs> diluted it. Unfortunately, and this happens a lot, blaming either the knowledge base we were given or the curriculum when we really didn't give it a chance. If a doctor says, take three pills twice a day and you take one once a day and then you say, see, it didn't work, but you never really did it. And I think talking about that idea, it hits teachers. They get that. They can get that idea. And then it's more of let's all work together to give it a try. Let's give it a really honest shot. And then we'll come back and take a look at it. I really appreciate what you just said, Linda. And that is, Allison said, it's not fast, quick work. We're talking about rewiring the brain. It's a heavy lift. And so having an appetite for delayed gratification, which doesn't mean we're not pressing hard. It means we give ourselves time to master these things and to really understand if they're working or not. And Allison, what is the one thing you wish all educators knew and had a full understanding of when it comes to teaching all students to become successful readers? The one thing that's top of the list for you. Great question, Tracy. And I'm going to say this, and I hope it's not taken through an incorrect lens, but here's what I know. Students do not choose to come to school with the attitude of, I don't really feel like learning to read today. They're not born with that. They're not there to be troublemakers. They want access and opportunity to learning. And so when that doesn't happen, they're angry, they're frustrated. And you compound that with all the other strangeness in the world with a pandemic and all the other things. Yes, there is trauma, but really it's just kids don't choose not to learn to read. It's astounding to me that even as a reading specialist, teachers would say, well, they just can't get it. Well, sure they can. We just need to figure out what do we focus on first? What is the skill that they need to focus on first? We're not going to give up on them just because we're frustrated that they're not learning to read. So I try to share this with administrators, with teachers to say kids aren't choosing not to learn to read, right? We know that for about 5% of the population, they're like me. They just learn to read. Don't really know how. It just comes to them. We know about 35% of the population learns to read with some broad instruction, right? Those are the kids that'll do well with balanced literacy, whole language. They're going to get it, right? And then we have another 45 to 50% of the population that requires some sort of explicit instruction and in the structure of the language, the science of reading. They need more information about how our language works to put the pieces together. But if we give them those pieces, they're going to get it. And then we know that for 10 to 15% of the population, learning to read is very challenging. And that's going to require some intensive intervention. What I need teachers to know is just keep that open heart, that open mind. And if you can get really quality curriculum and understand the knowledge behind why you should be doing some of the things that you're doing in the classroom, then the world will open up to you. And to me, it was a joy to be in the classroom because every day I got the opportunity to figure out my students' strengths and weaknesses. And that was always my challenge. I wanted an administrator to walk in my room, point to a kid, and I can tell you three things that they struggle with and three things they're really good at. That's what I needed to know about my students in order to get them to the next level. I had to meet them where they were. I want that experience for all teachers. I want all teachers to be excited. You can really meet the majority of student needs if you will just follow the science of reading. It's there, it's been there. It's been there for a really long time. We know this so they can all know how to read and comprehend 
and be patient, especially with your struggling readers. Again, it's not their choice. They need help, right? They can be the most challenging students, but also the most rewarding in the classroom. And by golly, if you have students that need accommodations to be successful, especially if you're a middle school teacher, take the time to explain what that means, what these are. How can you support that student so they can learn to advocate for themselves as they age and they get older? So they have, again, that opportunity of learning. We just don't want to shut down. So what if they need class notes? So what if they need an untimed test or whatever? Let's make that happen for them. And I know with shortage of teachers, with shortage of people that can step in and help, sometimes that's an extra burden on teachers, but please do that because that's what's going to help that child be successful in whatever they choose to do. But what we know is that's their commodity, right? Knowing what they need to be successful, that sets them up for choice, right? That doesn't give them limited options. So just be patient and be kind and educate students. Because to me, that was a big shocker in the classroom is a lot of kids, again, that had been diagnosed either under special education or 504, and they were to receive some sort of accommodations. Majority of them didn't know what they were or what that even meant. They hadn't even tried them. So be willing and open to explore that as well. If you're not sure, reach out for help. There are great, great teachers out there that would love to show you how to explain to a child what those accommodations are, what it means, and how that can impact their learning. So yeah, you got this. Allison, what you said is a transferable perspective to any educator. Every educator is a leader. And I'd love to say, as you know, leadership is not about position and title. It's about disposition. Absolutely. So going to someone to create that mental model for how it can work giving yourself the energy to get in the arena and fight for kids is so crucial. I do want to wrap up with one question. How does your path into the field of education impact how you work with educators? So you don't forget, you know, where you came from. I'm sure it just shows up in the way you're communicating, but how does that path unfold for you now that you're able to have that butterfly effect, if you will, through your work? I'm all in on education. I know some people are fleeing the field by leaps and bounds, right? Because it's hard work. It's not fun. And it's in a bit of a funk right now is how I explain it to people. But I have empathy and understanding and just crazy respect for those that are in the classrooms doing the day-to-day work. I was asked to use some of these programs that did not work. So I come from the point of, let's fix this. Let's get it right. Because if we can change the way we function within schools, It just is going to make the teacher's life so much easier when you have students that are getting it and they're excited to be there and they're excited about their critical thinking, right? How do we get them to the next level skills? I feel like education is mired down now just because we can't get students over this hump. We can't get enough good readers in classrooms where they can work on those next level skills. Let's talk about all the other life skills, like how are we good community members. What are we going to do to do the next big innovative thing? We don't have enough students that are ready for that sort of thing. So to me, it's a whole loss of a workforce. It's a loss of potential within communities. And it just makes me sad. And I refuse to give up on our educational system. We're too invested in it. We are all stakeholders in this. You can't just walk away from education. This is it. This is our stronghold for the next generation. I want to fight the good fight for those campuses, for districts, for state levels. Anyone that has the intention of moving forward, get on the bus with us. We will help you 
we are all in this field together to move these mountains that seem really hard right now, but it's going to get easier. We just need more of that intentionality, more people coming to the table. We have all of these amazing people right now in this podcast that are more than willing to use their own time and energy and research and love to move forward. So we got to stop the infighting and this is right, this is wrong. Let's just all follow the science of reading. Give it a really good shot and see where this can take us. And that to me is the exciting part. I want to get there. I know we're going to do it in my lifetime. I know we are. I'm with you, Allison. This is our collective moonshot and we're not going to miss the moment. Tracy, I've got a question that I want to jump in here with Allison. Now, Allison, it's going to be a tough one, okay? I'm going to test us all here. I've been doing some learning just this week from the late, great Wayne Dyer, who was a motivational speaker. He did a lot around leadership. And he's got this great teaching around you can't send ducks to Eagle School. And that is so true. And in education, now let me tell you, I am the biggest cheerleader and champion of teachers. I wasn't teacher. I know what it's like. I am the biggest cheerleader. But Allison, in this implementation phase that we go through, and we've been working and grounding ourselves and knowledge building and getting new curriculums and unlearning, and you go do a walkthrough, over and over and over, and you got the duck that hadn't even taken the stuff out of the cellophane wrapper. As leaders, what do we do about that? That is a loaded question. And I have seen that happen more than a few times. So it goes from the attitude of let's pull them alongside. And what does that mean? Maybe I'm dropping everything and I'm in there on a regular basis to model what a good lesson looks like. I'm in there during their PLC time to help them lesson plan, to get excited about data in a weird kind of way. Let's see what is our potential. Let's do some long-term planning. Where do we want to be in six weeks? Let's set some small goals for your students. Let's set some small goals for you. And sometimes that's taking one part of a program and saying, you know what, over the next week, let's focus really hard on that. It's setting up those small steps so you feel like, you can meet any teacher where they are and getting into their mindset. You have to be that positive space when you come across those educators that have pretty much given up. They're going to show up, try to have some fun with their students, but not really think about long term. To me, I get so excited when I'm thinking, okay, I'm in a second grade classroom. Where do you picture your students in five or six years? Let's go visit the middle school. Let's see how those kids are. You have long-term impact. So it's bringing him back to that. But really, all I can say about teachers that are in that negative space is we're going to do it together. I'm going to give it all I got and we're going to do it together. Allison, have you ever been working alongside people in those implementations where you didn't see the move and you had to make the tough call? because the lives of kids were too urgent. Listen, I do want to come alongside educators, but I think there's also a moment as leaders that we've got to have the tough conversation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can't have, it's twofold because sometimes we see administrators say, oh, they're really not excelling there. So we're going to take them out and put them somewhere else that we feel is less valued. And that drives me crazy as well. Either they're a value to the school or they're not. You can't say first grade is more important than fifth grade. It's all important. We do see administrators now having to make hard decisions when they know 
they don't really have a back bench necessarily to fill. With teacher retention rates, we're not producing as many teachers. So it's really hard decisions. I think to be an administrator now is just you're making some tough decisions based on, do I have someone to fill this classroom? Next question, are they high quality? Are they willing to dig in and do the work and be receptive to new programs? So it's tough. I mean, I have all the grace and kindness for all of those administrators out there because sometimes it seems like there's not a good choice, but absolutely, you can make a worse choice. Don't take a teacher that's struggling and doesn't really want to be there and think, oh, I can hide them in this grade. You can't hide that. We don't have the time for that. We just don't. Great answer. Tracy, jump in. I really love that question, Terry. And we're at a really important juncture nationally in that we will invest in war and we will invest in prison systems. How are we going to invest in the future of this country through bringing honor to the profession of education? How are we going to look at that upstream issue, not only of teacher preparation, but leader preparation. Because I'm gonna tell you, I was not prepared to scale the work of literacy responsibly when I was going through my superintendency prep program. I'm just gonna keep it real. And that was a terrible disservice to me and to my children. So this idea of the upstream issue is the long game, I think, gotta think about as well. We have a teacher shortage. We're talking about raising teacher salaries at the federal level, but it's a band-aid. Where's the bold vision of being the most literate country in the world? How about that? And what would that take? If that's our end goal, how do we backload from that goal? How do we prepare educators like we would a doctor, a lawyer, or a pilot? So we're going to put kids on the plane of literacy, if you will, put a teacher in the cockpit they need to be able to fly that plane and ensure that children land safely. I love your question, Terry. We can't keep tinkering around the edges of systems change. In feeding the old systems, inviting them to the table, it's time to starve those old systems and feed new systems. Yeah, I want to jump in real quick and give a kind of my own perspective on this. I do think it's important for us to think about context and also culture. It's really difficult when you're in a rural, impoverished community to think that teachers, especially superintendents, don't make enough when it's public record. And you're living below the minimum poverty level. And you look and you got a six-figure person who supposedly is the superintendent of a school district that fails you and your community every day of the week. So I do think that we have to remember that any conversation about equity of pay needs to be about an equity of where we are as a nation and what we all deal with. Because a lot of these cultural issues are sometimes colorblind or also economically blind to cultural realities. And it's not black and white always. It's sometimes a real hard reality that some of us white folk are also stuck in places that we can't seem to escape. And it's really hard to think that a teacher might need to make more money when they're already making more than the average of the community that they're serving. So I think that's not to say that we shouldn't talk about teacher salary, but we also need to hold educators accountable. And it's not surprising that we have parent movements and people movements that are trying to do that. And I'd say that also goes for the expectation that leaders in schools who make the most, just like CEOs of companies make the most, that they need to be held accountable to have structure, just like those teachers need to have structure. And that comes from a person who didn't have structure growing up and trying to learn how to read. So I have a lot of empathy for the teachers because I don't see them getting a lot of structure and support either. 
And I didn't get that from them when I was in a public school system, when I was in the 80s. But I also don't see it when I go into schools to see leadership providing structure to allow them to thrive either. So I do think that we want to bring economics into the equation. I think we need to have a blunt reality talk about what the median poverty level is in our nation and a lot of rural communities across this nation. And there are a lot of people out there in Appalachia and a lot of people out there in those Ozark Mountains. There are a lot of people out there in the Delta. There are a lot of people out there on those Native American reservations that would really appreciate a teacher's salary on a 10-month contract. I know it's not a summer vacation, guys, but that's a pretty whopping salary for those contexts. So I do want to bring that to the mix because a national conversation that our Department of Education is trying to have right now is going to set and land differently based on who you're talking to and for very real economic reasons. Absolutely. It's not just money. It's setting people up for success. And that's why I think what Allison said earlier about being very vulnerable about what we don't know as leaders and demanding more in terms of how we're prepared for the right work is a crucial conversation. Yeah, I'm going to actually ask another money question because yesterday, a legislator in my state, California, we're in the process of proposing some legislation, asked me a really difficult question. How much money do you think it takes or time to prepare a teacher after university to give them the professional knowledge that they need on how reading works and also to prepare them to teach a new curriculum well? What does it take in terms of actual time? Because they're looking at how might they fund schools that are interested in doing a more comprehensive approach that combines knowledge training with specific work on a new curriculum and then supporting that with some ongoing external coaching? So what do you, with all of your experience, how much time would you think is required to get a school in the right place? That's a pretty heavy question. I don't know if you could even quantify that into a reasonable amount of time that you could equate money with that. It seems like it's a priceless scenario to have that happen. I think for schools to do the work, for teachers to be prepared, I think you're looking at a year or two before we should even really hold teachers that are new to this profession to that higher level. One thing that we've talked about in our circles down here in the Houston area is, does this look like new teachers have university alternative certification? However, they come to the classroom, is it more of an apprenticeship? Is that more of a lane that we should do instead of having that high expectation from day one? Because there's so much to learn. And especially when there's new curriculum, how do you get a lead teacher, a master teacher that has experience in a curriculum when everyone's learning and at the same time, who do they turn to for questions? It's kind of this unrealistic set up for frustration on the part of teachers. But yeah, I'm curious to see what everyone else says. Can we do some background knowledge for our listeners really quick? Because I think it's interesting as I look at the peanut gallery here, Terry, Allison, and myself come from a very specific training background and lineage that looks different than what Linda helped establish through hers. And Tracy, you represent a different type of training. This is actually a conversation that's come up and this is one of those lightning rod issues among the science of reading crowd and causes a lot of division because 
each of us has been brought up under a different type of training model and has our own lived experiences of different success. This actually resonates with a lot of the talking points that I was writing down, which the first one I want to say is that a comment that I've heard Richard Rohr and others say is you have to know the rules to break them. And so I do think that this gets at the heart of really knowing what we don't know and not going off script before we really are competent to do it. And I wanted to ask Allison, through your practicum-based type of training that you would have gotten through Nye House, that I got through Texas Scottish Rice Hopper for Children, Terry got a similar one, that's a very labor-intensive, costly model. And I know that there's been federally funded research that's allowed us to see some cost savings. I also have a Wilson language training background. So our facilitator coaching was also a relatively expensive human model and technology can be brought in to have some cost savings. But I do think for the listenership out there, we might want to just start to give some parameters and some background knowledge about what some different approaches that have been tried to try to raise structured literacy in individuals along that. And Allison, I'm going to point to you as the chief academic officer for NIHOUSE is someone who might have some understanding around those models. Great question. I do feel that, I'll be honest with you, I'm narrow-minded. I feel that models like ours are what teachers need to be successful. But even the training that we provide for tier one, we say it is a practice-based professional development with the intention of you're going to be teaching to your peers. You're going to practice these skills, right? We can give you the research and tell you what science of reading is, but then we're going to put you to point and we want you to practice these skills. And I said this earlier, not every teacher is built to teach structured literacy. There's a rhyme. There's a reason you have to be kind of a nerd about the research of the why. And it's those teachers that are real excited about that. Oh, this is why the spelling makes sense because I can equate it back to these articles in this book. And not every teacher likes that, needs that. They want to be able to go off script, right? The classroom is their domain. So really that timing of that is is such a funny thing to me because to me, it's kind of like going to the opera. Either you really enjoy it or you learn to enjoy it. So I think the same thing with teachers and structured literacy. You have some that are taken to it. They understand it. And so their uptick is going to be much quicker than those that are like, I don't really know. I'm still unsure. Or they just don't like to teach in that method with that explicit teaching and, and the way the curriculums are designed to follow that scope and sequence in a very particular manner. So what does that look like? Their timing is going to be much longer. Is going to be different to meet them where they are? Those are great questions. But I do feel like I'm biased. I think that all teachers should have real-time practicums. I think they need that practice before they get in the classroom. They need to be involved with cohorts of their peers where it's a safe space for that lesson planning to try out modeling and lessons with each other before you do it in the classroom so you can get things better the first time when you're in front of students. So that's my skewed vision of what I think an educator should be before you step into the arena of teaching. Yeah, I'm going to jump in on that because we had a model in California during Reading First, and this is where some of our legislators are coming from. That model started with something like 60 hours of initial knowledge-based professional learning followed by 80 hours of follow-up at each site. And what we found during that time was that was all well and good for it starting out, but you needed to think about year two, year three, the added practicum, the watching teachers. So in trying to identify for 
these folks who want to put a dollar to something is, as you say, really difficult because it's so time intensive. I know what Core does, my old company, they have about 45 hours of strict knowledge training. And then they have the follow-up practicum ongoing on-site practice that could be anywhere from 60 to 80 days with some outside expert where they're also working with coaches, with leaders, and building internal expertise. So you need less of the external the next year. But it's really costly. And what I find when talking to legislators is they don't get it. They just think you can do all this fast and cheap. We'll just give them three days of training and then have a publisher come in for a half a day on the curriculum. You guys all know that. You know what publishers do. I used to call it the open the box training because that's what it was. And then you say to teachers, you're on your own. I think personally it's cruel. I agree with you, Linda. And I think that question is so profound because it should include, have we prepped the system for change? The change management piece is huge and often poorly done at the state department level, the district level, and the school level. So it's going to cost a whole lot and it's not going to work. We don't do the change management piece well and thoughtfully. Teachers deserve to know and leaders deserve to know what we're going to stop doing, not just what we are going to start doing. We shove all these things on the plates of educators and they are in initiative overload. And so we need to give them permission to strategically release or abandon what is not serving educators and children well, so they can embrace the things that will. So that's less costly. And we don't spin our wheels and waste educator and children's times and lives if we're willing to do that change management piece up front. Thank you so much for that, Tracy. I mean, we've had such good discussion today. Tim, every time on these podcasts, he challenges our thinking, which is incredible about what we need to do and think about how we lead this work. Allison, as we start to wrap up, any final thoughts that you want to add about implementation and the work that you do? The last words I would like to share for teachers is know that we honor you. And even if you're in a place or space that doesn't agree with the science of reading, you can start doing the work yourself. There are wonderful Facebook groups. There are really great communities, learning communities out there that want to push this movement forward. So start, you know, there are great resources, great programs out there. Don't be afraid. Just come at it with an open heart and an open mind. Visit schools that you know are doing this. To me, that's the biggest thing. If you can see it in action in a classroom, you'll understand what the difference is between what is maybe happening at your campus versus somewhere else. Just don't be afraid of it. Just embrace it. I feel like the science of reading is where we have to move to so we don't fail our students. And it's time. Like I said before, I'm not giving up on the state of our public education. It can be great. But we just need to really give this a good try. So please get on the bus with us and do this. We will help you. 
And Allison, I know you mean that. We will help you because I've seen you present at conferences about what you're doing to come alongside school districts. So love that you're doing that. Love that we've got these leaders here leading large in literacy across our country and the fact that we get to highlight so many of them in this podcast series. Thanks so much, everyone. We will see you next time.